Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined uh, by Dr. Michael Gluth, and we'll be discussing chronic ear disease. Dr. Gluth, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Excited to chat. Uh, Typically, when we have these episodes, we start with the presentation, but as you and I kind of discussed already, it's probably better to define what we're even talking about here since this is a wide spectrum. So can you start by just uh, explaining to us when we talk about chronic ear disease, what are we talking about? Yeah, so this is a curious topic because I think um, surgeons that take care of a lot of these patients often have a really clear grasp in their own mind of what this condition is, but it's a little more difficult to neatly verbalize what a chronic ear is in a succinct way that really captures the entire spectrum of what we're dealing with. So, um, you know, in a simplistic way, often people would say, oh, well, a chronic ear is a chronic condition where you have a perforated eardrum and you have uh, chronic uh, odoria. But unfortunately, that excludes a lot of uh, relevant cases. So take, for example, a patient that has a major chronic uh, eardrum retraction, uh, underlying middle ear effusion, underlying ossicular erosion, and then ultimately evolves into a cholesteatoma. Well, that patient doesn't have a perforation, and they may really not have prominent otorrhea. So that doesn't really work. Um, Sometimes you'll hear people say chronic ear disease is just sort of uh, the full spectrum of eustachian tube dysfunction or eustachian tube dysfunction gone bad. And that allows for inclusion of the majority of cases, but there's a lot of exceptions there too. So you'll see patients that may have a traumatic perforation that turns into a chronic ear, or you may have a situation where uh, there's something like a slag injury Um, Also, uh, there are situations where uh, you'll evaluate a patient that has an aerated uh, ear or mesotympanum at least, and the eustachian tube seems to be working well, but they'll have an isolated disventilation of the attic and an attic cholesteatoma, and uh, there may be nothing wrong with the eustachian tube in that situation. So um, the reality of this condition is that it is a spectrum of disease wherein you have a number of pathophysiologic processes that overlap with each other, and they variably present in a given ear. So understanding these variable pathologic processes or pathophysiologic processes are really the key in understanding you know, what a chronic ear is. And when we talk about some of the terminology around how we talk about chronic ear disease, what are some things we should pay particularly close attention to? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, there's been an alphabet soup of terminology uh, used to describe some of these ears. And unfortunately, there's not a accepted classification system for chronic ear disease. Having said that, there are some accepted standards, and I think we can go over some of these. And as we do so, I think that you know, understanding uh, the terminology also uh, is relevant to the underlying pathophysiology that we're talking about. So the first thing I think to understand or to talk about is the spectrum of chronic middle ear disease in the setting of an intact eardrum. So Bluestone is sort of the uh, individual who classified chronic middle ear disease with an intact eardrum as being either eustachian tube dysfunction 
otitis media with effusion or acute otitis media. And um, so understanding these three and what's going on, I think, is an important or a good place to start. So eustachian tube dysfunction, of course, we're talking about a dysventilation syndrome of the tympanomastoid space uh, where there's a, a derangement in the homeostatic mechanism of gas exchange and pressure equalization in the, in the middle ear and, uh, space. So these patients have negative middle ear pressure. They'll present with discomfort, fullness, may have some mild hearing loss, uh, may have a little bit of eardrum retraction but they don't have an effusion. Um, and so the you know next classification being otitis media with effusion uh, is I think one of those conditions where the alphabet soup comes in. So, you know, people have uh, in the literature variably called this serous otitis media or secretory otitis media. Um, but um, but uh, really what we're looking at here is a disventilation syndrome where patients develop a, an exudative middle ear effusion. Uh, but more than that, it's when they start to develop some uh, distinct changes in the mucosa. So if you look at these patients from a histopathologic perspective, uh, they start to develop mucosal edema uh, with widening of the subepithelial space. Uh, as it progresses, you may see some uh, inflammatory cell infl infiltration into the mucosa with cytokine release. You can see loss of ciliary function. Most of the prominent cilia-bearing um, cells in the middle ear are in the protympanum area around the tubal orifice, and so you'll see loss of cilia. And then over time, you'll start to see a goblet cell predominance. And um, when that happens, perhaps the effusion will uh, develop more of a mucinous uh, component where, you know, you have a glue ear type situation. And so there are some ears that will be chronic and really just fall within the eustachian tube dysfunction or otitis media with effusion spectrum uh, with progressive uh, eardrum collapse and atelectasis and eventual cholesteatoma formation, but not necessarily have a prominent infectious component. So the third um, type of middle ear disease with an intact eardrum uh, is reserved for those ears that sort of you know break bad, if you will. And so we're looking at a situation where um, patient has a middle ear effusion, but then rapidly develops pain and systemic symptoms such as fever, uh, irritability. And there are four stages classically described to um, understand acute otitis media. So you start out with inoculation in the so-called hyperemic phase. You move on to a second exudative phase where there's cytokine-mediated capillary leakage. And then ultimately you have a separative phase where um, you have a pyogenic process, usually neutrophil-driven, which unfolds. This is a key phase because this is often when we would see a, a tympanic membrane perforation and infectious odorrhea. And then usually you move into a resolution phase where uh, the infection and inflammation progressively subsides and hopefully you have healing. Um, some of these ears will revert to otitis media with effusion or eustachian tube dysfunction, but in a percentage, uh, the perforation can persist and devitalize, and then those are the ears that uh, move on to become what we call chronic separative otitis media. 
So when we look at chronic conditions in medicine, strictly speaking, we're talking about something that's been present for it, uh, three months. Uh, but with chronic ear disease, usually this has been present much longer. So we've tried to classify this according to things like the eardrum integrity, uh, the odoria frequency or severity, um, whether or not there's cholesteatoma present or not, what are the sub areas of the ear that's involved so that some people use words like tubotympanic chronic otitis media when you have prominent pars tensid disease and eustachian tube dysfunction versus atacoantral chronic otitis media where you have uh, epitympanic disease and cholesteatoma uh, selectively in that ear. And um, so it does get quite confusing. Uh, but in the end, you know, to sort of summarize what we're talking about, I think chronic ear disease is essentially a chronic inflammatory condition affecting the middle ear space, lasts at least three months, but usually longer. And there's a spectrum that's generally associated with one or more of the following among disventilation of some sort of the tympanomastoid space, uh, eardrum abnormalities, either a perforation or retraction, middle ear remodeling, including mucosal disease, ossicular dysfunction, and scar sequela, uh, perhaps some type of infection, including a uh, unique microbiologic snapshot that we see in these chronic ears, which we can talk about later, conductive hearing loss, and then the possibility of associated cholesteatoma or associated complication. And so when we're talking about chronic ear disease, We've alluded to this some, but who's the typical patient who presents to your clinic with chronic ear disease, and how do you evaluate them? Yeah, so uh, you can see this in either adults or children. To be honest, there's limited data available regarding the exact risk factors for chronic ear disease, but we infer that the risk factors known for acute otitis media also apply to the chronic condition. So with that, we're talking about things like age or eustachian tube maturity, um, certainly a past history of severe acute otitis media puts you at risk for chronic ear disease, craniofacial abnormalities uh, or cleft palate, um, patients that have had radiation to the temporal bone, immunodeficiency, uh, social factors such as poor hygiene or poor living conditions and malnutrition. And then there have been uh, certain ethnic groups, in particular the indigenous people, of Australia, Alaska, the southwestern United States, or Greenland, which uh, seem to be particularly at risk. And what are the, some of the symptoms folks are complaining of when they present to your clinic? Right. So as I've alluded to, there's a broad spectrum of underlying disease. So there's variability in how these patients present. So when you think of chronic ear disease, I think it's fair to start by thinking about someone who comes in with hearing loss and chronic otorrhea. Um, but they may have things like fullness, pressure, pain, itching. Uh, tinnitus is pretty common. Uh, some patients complain of headache. Uh, and then there's other symptoms uh, such as vertigo, facial weakness, uh, or a history of neurologic complications like, a se like seizures that have been unexplained, uh, meningitis or mental status changes, which uh, might suggest a complication. And what are you looking for on physical exam? Right. So first and foremost, you perform a microscopic ear examination um, with attention to the ear canal and tympanic membrane. So what's the status of the eardrum? Is there a perforation? Um, often you will, you'll see otic pus. Um, if there is a perforation, the middle ear mucosa is 
diseased looking, often edematous, maybe granulating. Some of these patients with granulation uh, will bleed from time to time, and so there may be a blood tinge component to the otorrhea, which is always alarming to patients. Um, alternatively, the eardrum may be retracted, either the pars tensa or pars flaccida, even to the point of complete drum collapse. Uh, in those patients, there may or may not be an underlying middle ear fusion. Uh, commonly, you'll see uh, chronic scar sequela, so moringosclerosis involving the eardrum, or if you can see through a perforation uh, in severe ears, sometimes you'll see uh, tympanosclerotic plaques in the middle ear space. One clinical pearl is related to an aural polyp. So um, if you look in the ear and you see an aural polyp, you need to be thinking about cholesteatoma. Keratin is highly immunogenic, and so uh, cholesteatoma often reacts with mucosa to generate a polyp, and so uh, that's a, a clinical pearl. Um, sometimes you'll see a retrotympanic whitish uh, cyst uh, or eroded ear canal bone. Uh, some of these patients will have secondary fungal infections, so you'll see fungal spores. And then you also look for stigmata of past surgery, so an extruded tympanostomy tube, a postauricular scar, mastoid cavity, or evidence of previous eardrum grafting. And when patients present with uh, some of these more classic symptoms, tympanic membrane perforation, otorrhea, what is on your differential diagnosis? Yeah, so, I mean, you're thinking about, like we said, the spectrum of eustachian tube dysfunction, but there are other disease conditions which are relevant that you need to be thinking about. So things like uh, systemic vasculitis, so sarcoidosis, uh, granulomatosis with polyangitis, Schurg-Strauss disease. Um, you may want to think about some type of immunodeficiency, so especially in uh, immunoglobulin subclass deficiency or uh, even HIV infection. Um, some of the uh, ciliary diseases, so ciliary dyskinesia or uh, perhaps even cystic fibrosis, although, of course, those patients are going to have um, a lot of rhinologic disease. And then I think you also need to think about the possibility of some type of a neoplasm. So a middle ear tumor such as a papilloma uh, or paraganglioma, uh, malignant tumor, so squamous cell carcinoma, adenoid cystic carcinoma. Uh, or even something unusual like Langerhans uh, cell histiocytosis. So uh, if um, you have refractory chronic ear and you see something unusual in the middle ear space, you should have a low threshold for biopsy. And moving on to kind of the workup, um, what is your next step in these patients? And how do you break down the different aspects of what you're looking for when you're evaluating someone with a chronic ear? So you take a comprehensive history and uh, you examine the ear, as we already discussed. You don't want to neglect examination of the nose and nasopharynx uh, to see carefully what's going on there. Most all of these patients at some point are going to have an audiogram, including a tympanogram, and some of them may undergo radiologic imaging. So specifically, uh, CT scan without contrast of the temporal bone would be most common. I will say CT imaging in these patients uh, is controversial. So uh, some people have a low threshold for imaging. Others are a little more hesitant. I think certain situations, it makes a little more sense than others. So if you suspect a cholesteatoma and you're planning on operating on the patient, the patient has had extensive past surgery. If there's some type of a craniofacial syndrome where there may be an 
anatomic abnormality, especially with a facial nerve. Uh, if the patient has a complication present or you're suspecting that, um, if you're worried about a neoplasm, or if you just have an ear that's been refractory to significant past treatment efforts and you want to know a little bit more about what's going on. And so the idea is you do all these things. You examine the patient, you talk about what's going on, you image them, you test their hearing. And while you're doing that, you're thinking about all of these pathologic processes that we just talked about. And I think it's critical while you're doing this to systematically assess the patient for the key aspects of chronic ear disease. And so, you know, in my practice, there's really eight things that I'm thinking about while I'm doing that. I'm thinking about ventilation status, the eardrum status, the middle ear status, the infection status, the anatomic temporal bone status, the hearing status, whether or not there's a cholesteatoma and whether or not there's a complication. And going through this systematically, how do you assess ventilation? Yeah. So the first thing about dysventilation or eustachian tube dysfunction is that you want to get a sense of whether or not this is pervasive or something that's intermittent. So for example, someone who has a craniofacial abnormality or has a radiated ear, that eustachian tube is probably never working. On the other hand, you'll have other patients who have seasonal allergic rhinitis, or maybe they do fine most of the time, but if they have an upper respiratory tract infection or uh, get on an airplane, then they have a hard time uh, recovering. So getting an idea of sort of the timing and pervasiveness, I think, is important. Uh, it's always a bit of a trick to definitively determine whether the eustachian tube is working, but there are sort of an array of tricks and tools that we have. So often we'll have patient try to perform a Valsalva maneuver while we're examining them, or uh, there's also what's called toy and bees maneuver, where you have the patient pinch their nose, close their lips, and swallow. Uh, you can perform pneumatic otoscopy. We perform tympanograms. Uh, um, it's useful to look in the contralateral ear. So a normal contralateral ear is certainly a good prognostic factor. We consider age, so roughly around age eight is when we think the eustachian tube should have uh, anatomic and physiologic maturity. And then if you have a collapsed eardrum or a severe retraction, looking at whether or not there's any air in the protympanum I think is useful. Some of these ears, eardrums will have collapsed and scarred to the middle ear wall. Eustachian tube function recovers, but the eardrum remains retracted. So whether there's a protympanic air collection or not, I think is helpful. And then you're also thinking about what parts of the tympanomastoid space are involved. So if it's true eustachian tube dysfunction, then you would expect all subsites to be uh, involved. But there is a condition or a situation that we call selective epitympanic and mastoid dysphenylation, where the connection between the attic and the rest of the middle ear space uh, is blocked. And the rest of the middle ear space, of course, is where the eustachian tube connects to. So you can have a situation where there's uh, dysphenylation and negative pressure in the attic and therefore the mastoid while the rest of the middle ear is spared. Uh, the connection or uh, partition between the attic and the other parts of the middle ear called the epitympanic diaphragm, and those are made up of the ossicles, mucosal folds, and ligaments. Uh, there are some reliable ventilation pathways adjacent to the stapes that we call the tympanic isthmus. 
but those can be blocked with uh, scarring, webbing, granulation, etc. And so considering which parts of the tympanomastoid space are dysventilated, I think is important. And then we move on to causes of eustachian tube dysfunction. So rhinologic disease, allergy, what's going on with the adenoid? Is it hypertrophied? Is there nasopharyngitis? Uh, neuromuscular disease such as myasthenia gravis can affect tubal function. Is the patient a smoker? Has there been radiation? Could there be something like a peripharyngeal or nasopharyngeal mass, which is causing a mass effect? Uh, is there a cleft palate or craniofacial syndrome? And then there's also kind of a rare situation where patient, in fact, has a patchless eustachian tube, uh, where they get into this cycle of habitual valsalva, and that could lead to thinning of the eardrum, hypermobility, collapse, perforation. Uh, so that's also something I think we're thinking about. So assessing ventilation then affects, you know, how we're going to treat the patient with medications, whether they need a tube or some type of procedure like a balloon eustachian tube, tuboplasty, um, how we're going to deal with the eardrum, what materials we might use in grafting. Uh, do we need to explore the middle ear and try to open up those ventilation pathways or do they need referral uh, to a rheumatologist or immunologist or something like that? And continuing on through this systematic uh, process, how do you evaluate the tympanic membrane? Right. So obviously a chronic per perforation usually has these sort of thickened, matured, devitalized margins. And so obviously how easy is it to inspect the eardrum in the office? And that gives you some idea as to how you might access it surgically, um, which segments of the eardrum are diseased. Uh, if it's retracted, then what happens is that the middle layer of the eardrum is deficient. So there's loss of collagen. And sometimes people call this a monomeric tympanic membrane. That's actually a misnomer. It's actually a dimer uh, where all you have is epithelium and mucosa and the collagenous supportive middle layer is absent. So you'll see these patients often there's concern when the pars tensa collapses posteriorly and starts to involve the ossicular chain or retracts down into the retrotympanum or onto the promontory. Uh, you also look at the pars flaccida and um, you know that uh, can be retracted as well onto the malleus neck or start to emerge into a cholesteatoma. I think it's really useful to be aware of some of the grading scales. There's a TOS and Chardet grading scale for pars flaccida and pars tensor retractions. If you're going to follow these over time in the office, um, you know, objectively documenting how uh, retracted these subsites were uh, helps you, uh, you know, long-term. Moving on, uh, after you assess the tympanic membrane, then you consider the middle ear. So what's going on with the mucosa? Uh, is it granulating? Is it fibrotic? Um, in very severely diseased ears, there's this condition that we call chronic fibrocystic sclerosis, where the middle ear space basically gets replaced by this thickened rind of fibrocystic scar tissue. And that really should be recognized as end-stage middle ear disease, and your prognosis for functional tympano-ossicular reconstruction in an ear like that would be very poor. So you wonder about whether or not there's post-obstructive change, effusion. Um, I will uh, say there is sort of a subgroup of uh, patients that you'll see, a small subgroup, who have extremely thick, tenacious middle ear secretions. Uh, often like what you would see when performing sinus surgery. So these really rubber band-like uh, brownish uh, type uh, mucoid material. 
And that is a trigger to consider a condition that we call eosinophilic otitis media. I can tell you that's a, um, a real challenge to care for those patients uh, because what's going on there is a disease process of the um, mucosa. And so doing things like placing a tube uh, or you know, trying to treat these patients with ototopicals uh, usually is inadequate. And there's probably going to be a role for treating these patients with biologic agents like we do for patients that have rhinosinusitis. And in fact, a lot of these patients will also have nasal polyps or aspirin sensitivity. So um, continuing on with the middle ear, we also look for new bone formation, tympanosclerosis. On a chronic basis, these thick uh, calcified plaques can build up. And uh, that's also an extremely poor prognostic factor for functional reconstruction. You can remove plaques or, or, or do things to uh, you know, mobilize uh, fixed ossicles, but the plaques um, have a tendency to want to come back. And then, of course, what's going on with the ossicular chain? So any of the ossicles can be affected. Um, incus is most common. So the most common defect that we see in chronic ear disease is erosion of the incus long process. Um, that said, uh, the incus head can be fixed as well. Uh, the second most common thing that we see is erosion of the stapes superstructure. Um, the foot plate can be fixed in cases if you have uh, severe tympanosclerosis. The malleus uh, very rarely eroded. Sometimes the manubrium can be foreshortened or eroded. If the malleus is diseased, it's more often fixation within the attic. So fibrosis or tympanosclerosis has basically fused the malleus head to the attic walls. So when you're considering treatment planning, this helps you get an idea of the prognosis for osseculoplasty or tympanoplasty, uh, whether or not you want to uh, perform a same stage or a stage ossicular reconstruction. If the middle ear envelope is severely diseased, you may want to let it calm down first. And uh, it may even affect something like what type of packing you want to use for tympanoplasty. So gel foam, which is classically used, is criticized for being pro-inflammatory. Uh, in a really denuded, granulating middle ear space, you may consider something like hyaluronic acid packing, which uh, may reduce scarring. So the next area is, of course, infection, and there's a unique snapshot of the infectious profile that we see in chronic ear disease. Uh, classically, we think about pseudomonas as being most common, but certainly there's a variety of pathogens. Uh, MRSA is definitely an emerging uh, major player, uh, MSSA. Uh, and then other uh, aerobic bacteria, you'll see Enterococcus, Klebsiella, E. coli. Um, so you can't just assume this is Pseudomonas. Uh, for treatment, um, refractory cases, uh, obtaining culture is useful. Some studies have shown that up to 50% of cases um, have uh, an anaerobic component, so Peptostreptococcus uh, in particular, uh, or uh, bacter Bacterioides uh, species. Um, some may have a component of yeast, especially Aspergillus uh, or Candida species, uh, and a lot of these infections are polymicrobial. Certainly biofilms play a role in chronic otitis media, and so being familiar with the biofilm cycle and the role it plays in uh, drug resistance and treatment resistance is important, so doing some type of uh, irrigation or surgical debridement uh, maybe what is necessary to, to break that biofilm cycle. 
Um, emerging research, especially on Pseudomonas, uh, has shown that um, they have a tendency to have colonies of sleeper cells, basically, or dormant cells, which are genetically and metabolically inactive. So you can treat patients with uh, antibiotics, the seem to be a clinical response, and then later those cells will basically uh, wake up. Uh, there's also this idea that you can overwhelm ear infections with ototopical drug concentration. So, for example, when you culture an ear and you run a resistance profile, the resistance profile that they give you is based on presumed oral or systemic therapy. But the drug concentrations that you get with ototopical are often a thousandfold higher than that. So usually we think that ototopical treatment can overwhelm uh, resistance. And that's usually true, but there's also emerging data to show that there are some highly resistant strains uh, that are resistant at the concentration of what we would expect with ototopical therapy. And when you're thinking about infection, uh, there's also some rare pathogens. So uh, mycobacteria or tuberculous otitis media is one of those that you, if you never consider it, you'll probably never diagnose it. So, you know, those are going to be patients that are going to be at risk for mycobacterial infection based on exposure or social history. And um, those patients have um, large perforations. Uh, some people describe them in some instances as being multiple or especially marginal perforations, and uh, they very are early known to erode the ossicular chain, especially the incus. Uh, as we know, mycobacteria is difficult to culture, and so you have to have an index of suspicion and refractory or at-risk cases to look for that and then put patients on prolonged treatment. So understanding the unique infection in chronic otitis media, the sites involved, whether or not your ototopical therapy is going to get there, what are the pathogens, uh, all sort of is important in uh, treatment planning. Uh, in cases where you're planning surgery, then um, uh, the next thing that we think about is sort of the temporal bone status. So what's the air cell pneumatization pattern in the ear? And this will probably only be evident if you get a CT scan, but is the temporal bone sclerotic or is it well pneumatized? Um, might there be congenital abnormalities with formation or development of the ossicles uh, or the course of the facial nerve? Uh, what's the caliber of the ear canal and what are the implications there for trying to remove cholesteatoma or trying to repair the eardrum? And then, of course, what is the status of the mastoid with respect to disease? So, of course, the mastoid air cell system is continuous with the middle ear, and so many of these uh, cases can properly be considered otomastoiditis. And um, so what do we need to do to apply treatment to those areas? Also, uh, in terms of safety, we think about things like height or positioning of the tegment or the positioning of the sigmoid, and sometimes that also will help us plan a surgical approach. The other thing we assess, of course, is hearing. So I already mentioned that most of these patients will get audiograms. And classically, you think of these patients presenting with a conductive or a mixed hearing loss. Tympanograms can be abnormal or normal, depending on what's going on. So type A, C, or B tympanograms are possible, depending on the underlying pathology. Um, a few pearls, I think, that are useful in uh, reading an audiogram in a chronic ear. Uh, first thing I would say is that if the eardrum is intact, and a patient has greater than 
about a 30 decibel airbone gap, you should be suspicious for some type of ossicular pathology. If you look at that um, conductive hearing loss and it is selectively present just in the low tones, uh, that's indicative of stiffness loading. And usually that implies tympanosclerotic or scar fixation of the incus and or malleus head within the attic. So a upsloping conductive loss or selective low tone conductive hearing loss, think lateral chain fixation in the attic. Um, if you see a greater than 30 decibel airbone gap and the airbone gap uh, involves 2000 hertz, so 2K is not closed, then most likely you'd be thinking about some type of ossicular erosion. And as we already said, um, you know, incus erosion far and away is going to be the most common thing. So we also consider the inner ear status. So um, inner ear status helps us prognosticate whether or not we might have a successful tympano-ossicular reconstruction uh, or whether or not the patient's going to need a hearing aid or not. So, you know, if you know the patient's going to need a hearing aid, then that might affect, you know, whether or not you're going to perform, say, for example, a wall up versus a wall down mastoid procedure. Um, if uh, there's a major sensorineural component to the hearing loss, then some of these patients go on to have uh, the uh, ear obliterated and the ear canal closed with a, as a blind sack and later go on to get a cochlear implant. Or if the middle ear space is just severely diseased and the prognosis for tympano-ossicular reconstruction is poor and the patient has failed multiple prior attempts at surgery, then in some of those cases, you may think about closing the ear and placing something like a bone conduction hearing aid. So the other thing that, of course, we think about is cholesteatoma, and I'm not going to get too far into the details of cholesteatoma because there's plans for a second podcast on that. But of course, cholesteatoma is an indication for surgery and um, also greatly heightens the risk of a complication. So, you know, we assess for congenital versus acquired cholesteatoma. Is it a retraction pocket versus a non-retraction pocket cholesteatoma? If it's a retraction pocket cholesteatoma, where is it? Is it pars flaccida or pars tensa? Non-retraction pocket would be something like epithelial growth around a perforation, uh, which may be reason for past tympanoplasty failure, or something like an implantation or iatrogenic cholesteatoma from a past tympanostomy tube or something like that. Um, and then, of course, the last thing is whether or not there's a complication. And, of course, if there are intratemporal or intracranial complications, uh, which I'm not going to go over right now, as that I think also is a whole separate topic, then um, the urgency or emergency of the whole situation is, is uh, shifted. So that often involves inpatient care, uh, systemic therapy, and um, you know, sometimes surgical debridement. So... Next, we'll move on to management strategies, and I feel that one of the difficult things as a resident is to decide when to pursue which type of uh, treatment. So we've discussed the systematic list of ventilation, tympanic membrane, assessment of the middle ear, infection, hearing status, temporal bone status, cholesteatoma, and other uh, kind of complications. How do you take all of these together and decide what's best for the patient next? Right. So in an ear that's not actively involved with a complication, then the general paradigm is to start with medical therapy, uh, which is usually office-based. So 
what we're trying to do is dry the ear or stabilize the ear first before ideally moving on with any type of surgery that might be necessary later. So office care involves um, aggressive oral toilets, so uh, suctioning of secretions or debris, applying some type of medication, usually an eardrop or occasionally some type of a powder. Um, if there's thick secretions, some people will apply some type of acidifying oral irrigation to clear secretions and clear a pathway for drops or powder. Um, drops or powders usually have some type of an antimicrobial component, uh, uh, possibly a corticosteroid, possibly an acidifying agent. Far and away, um, at least in the United States, the fluoroquinolone-containing drops are the mainstay of treatment because they're the only ones that have been FDA approved for application uh, when you have a tympanostomy tube or a tympanic membrane perforation. Uh, having said that, um, you know, the risk of ototoxicity in an acutely in, in a acutely inflamed middle ear space uh, where there's thickening around the round window, um, there's probably not a real high risk of ototoxicity, uh, but off-label use of other drops is probably best reserved for cases where you have a good reason to do so. So if you manage these patients in the office and it responds to treatment, and the ear is generally dry and there's no sign of cholesteatoma, then in some cases that's good enough. So in other words, surgery is not mandatory in those cases and the risk of developing a complication later is low. Now having said that, some of those patients that dry up will still go on to have surgery for quality of life reasons. So if you wanna to try to restore their hearing, you wanna facilitate the use of a hearing aid, or maybe there's some lifestyle consideration like the patient is a swimmer, and, uh, and, and so you think about these things, and so some of the low risk dry ears will still be operated on, but it's not mandatory. For those cases that you've tried to care for in the office, uh, but they still have chron chronic otorrhea, or maybe the response is temporary and then they start to drain again, uh, then those are the patients where you move on to surgery. And you're trying, of course, to dry the ear, prevent future complications, and so forth. So in summary, you know, surgery is generally applied for those patients that have complications, cholesteatoma, medically refractory disease, or better, medically responsive cases uh, where you need to do something to improve quality of life. And especially with patients who have a tympanic membrane perforation and are still draining, how do you decide whether or not to do a mastoidectomy and how to approach the tympanoplasty? So that's a great question. Um, so Far and away, the mainstay of treatment for chronic otitis media is tympanoplasty. So repair of the eardrum to restore that barrier separation between the uh, moist mucosalized middle ear space and the um, you know, dry ear canal. And so tympanoplasty alone is sufficient in the overwhelming majority of cases. And so this is something that has been studied reasonably well with prospective trials, and there have been numerous systematic literature reviews on this topic, where uncomplicated cases of chronic ear disease with a perforation, even those that drain from time to time, do no better with tympanoplasty alone versus tympanoplasty plus mastoidectomy. So 
the decision to apply mastoidectomy is really made on the, you know, specific cases where you have truly treatment refractory disease. Um, maybe on the CT scan, you see signs of osteitis. Maybe you're dealing with a case where there's a drug resistant pathogen. Um, so um, the real severe cases, there probably is a role uh, for mastoidectomy, but those are definitely exceptions. And the literature is pretty clear that routine therapeutic mastoidectomy uh, has a very limited role. And one thing that I think is difficult as a resident to understand is why does tympanoplasty do the trick when there's some sort of other underlying etiology? Well, um, tympanoplasty alone will not do the trick, I think, if you've not considered the other factors. So if you're not treating tubal dysfunction, um, if you're not uh, dealing with some of these systemic things that lead patients to disease uh, recidivism, you may repair the eardrum, uh, you know, stop otorrhea, but patient will not ventilate and they may continue to retract, they may redevelop effusion. So, so you have to be, again, taking a holistic approach to this. That said, you know, a lot of the techniques that have evolved to um, deal with tympanoplasty and the chronic ear setting um, are aimed at not only repairing the eardrum, but augmenting it. So cartilage tympanoplasty uh, provides a very robust repair where the eardrum is then resistant to future retraction, pocket formation, or possibly um, future uh, perforation. And how do you address uh, eustachian tube dysfunction in your treatment algorithm? Right. So in addition to all of the medical things that we've talked about, um, you need to, you know, be thinking about whether the patient needs an adenoidectomy. Um, some of these patients simply need a tympanostomy tube. If you think it's going to be necessary long-term, then, uh, then something like a T-tube. Uh, there are techniques where you can perform uh, concurrent eardrum grafting with an intubated cartilage graft, especially using a T-tube, and often those will stay in place for many years. And then, of course, there's a emerging but yet unclear role for things like eustachian tube uh, balloon dilation, which uh, also seems to improve, uh, you know, eustachian tube uh, dysfunction in a subgroup of patients. Mm -hmm. And what's your approach to tympanoplasty? I know we talked about it a bit already. There's a lot of ways to approach tympanoplasty, and I don't think it's useful to be dogmatic about it. Um, so these procedures can be done either with an endoscope or a microscope, and there's relative advantages to each. The endoscope gives fantastic visualization, but requires you to work with one hand. Microscope requires line of sight visualization, but allows you to work with both hands. So you can do these procedures through the ear canal, either with an endoscope or a microscope using a speculum. It's also possible to apply a very uh, limited endaural ins releasing incision, uh, which allows you to get uh, retractors into the external meatus, uh, which may help uh, with transcanal surgery. Uh, that said, the workhorse traditionally has been a postauricular approach. Um, postauricular approach can also be augmented with some type of a canalplasty procedure, which improves visualization of the tympanic membrane. So there's a number of techniques described, uh, all of which involve grafting, uh, of the eardrum, trying to restore integrity. Uh, there's 
classically an underlay procedure where a graft of some sort, either fascia or perichondrium or cartilage is placed uh, underneath the perforation and supported with packing. There are overlay techniques where you remove all of the remnant epithelium off of the eardrum, leave what's left of the fibrous layer, and then apply some type of graft directly onto that. And then for smaller perforations, there are inlay grafts, which are usually some type of a butterfly-like uh, cartilage insert, uh, which you can uh, splay into the eardrum, support with some packing, and, and those uh, might work in some cases as well. Um, Traditionally, fascia has been the most common material used to replace the eardrum, uh, but cartilage has definitely emerged as uh, also a workhorse material. Obviously, cartilage provides rigidity. Uh, it um, is very viable even in uh, actively infected ears. So it very rarely dies or uh, becomes infected. Um, Traditionally, people thought that grafting the eardrum with cartilage was a bad idea for hearing reasons, uh, but uh, you know the literature is pretty clear that at least in chronic ear disease, uh, the hearing outcomes with cartilage and fascia are uh, pretty equivalent. So, although fascia may theoretically may seem better because it's thin and it's pliable, um, it also has a tendency to form adhesions, especially on the undersurface. And cartilage may be a little bit more resistant to that. So you have to think about how is your graft um, performing not only from its biologic properties, but you know how does it actually heal in a living system? So, um, so yeah, those are sort of the principles of tympanoplasty. And then how do you approach uh, the ossicles in determining whether or not and how to fix those? So ossicular chain uh, repair can range from simple bone cement repair of an eroded ankylostapedial joint uh, to something like incus replacement uh, using a synthetic prosthesis or an autograft. So if you're just replacing the incus, then you know, we call that a minor columella repair or a partial uh, ossicular uh, replacement. Uh, so a prosthesis for that would be a PORP. Uh, if you're doing a repair of or replacement of the incus and the stapes superstructure, then that would be a total repair or a torp. Um, there is some controversy as to whether or not it's a good idea to reconstruct the ossicular chain at the same time as tympanic membrane repair or whether it should be done in stages. Results are probably better for two-stage repair in cases where you're repairing the eardrum and the middle ear envelope is severely diseased. So allowing the middle ear envelope to heal and then coming back later and reconstructing is probably ideal. Having said that, um, there are a lot of surgeons that do single stage repair in every case and then go back and revise the cases where it doesn't work very well. Rarely uh, we'll encounter stapes fixation and um, that's a very delicate topic. So the take home message there is basically don't touch the stapes uh, foot plate uh, unless the ear eardrum has been repaired and the middle ear space has been stable and quiescent for a very long time. And you've alluded to um, ear canal closure or subtotal petrosectomy. Can you give us some pearls on when you consider that? Yeah, so an example of a patient would be, you know, take someone who's had radiation to the temporal bone, they have chronic otorrhea, uh, they've had past attempts at tympanoplasty 
and the graphs fail, maybe you look in the ear and there's purulent odorrhea and there's exposed bone. So continuing on the pathway of trying to graft this ear over and over again is probably a bad idea. Um, you may have another patient where they have a severe mixed hearing loss and you know that that patient is not going to do well either with a reconstructive procedure or a hearing aid. In those cases, you have to ask, you know, what is to gain by trying to graft the eardrum uh, if it has no sort of functional use? So in those cases, often we perform what's called a subtotal petrosectomy. Uh, really what that is is a radical mastoidectomy procedure. So that means that you remove all of the ear canal skin, you evert the lateral ear canal skin and oversew it, uh, you remove the eardrum, you remove the ossicles, and then you drill out all of the uh, pneumatized portion of the temporal bone so far as possible. Uh, some people will plug the eustachian tube at the same time so that you're uh, basically separating the middle ear and mastoid from the nasopharynx and, uh, and then allow it to heal. And once those ears heal, some of them uh, later on uh, will be candidates for some type of a hearing implant. But even the ones that aren't, uh, you've eliminated the need for um, further surveillance. You've probably gotten rid of their odoria. So you've allowed the patients to do things like swim or get the ear wet. So if you're going to go on and perform a major eardrum repair uh, or a revision eardrum repair in an ear that has you know, no good functional hearing prognosis, then it's useful to step back and think maybe overclosure and subtotal petrosectomy is a better pathway. So we've discussed the surgical and treatment options. How do you generally uh, counsel patients on success rates and complications and how do you follow up with them? Yeah, so we call this chronic ear disease for a reason. So uh, you have to pay, follow these patients long-term uh, because recidivism is common. So patient may look great six months out or one year out, but as you gain experience in this, you'll realize that uh, uh, delayed failures are not unheard of. So even in the best case, I'm seeing these patients at least on a yearly basis uh, for ear cleaning, examination, uh, audiogram, that sort of thing. Um, as, for, as far as prognosis goes, you know that is gonna vary wildly uh, based on their prognostic factors. So things like what is the uh, status of the uh, middle ear mucosa? Is there a lot of scar sequela? What's the eustachian tube function uh, or ventilation status? Are there underlying systemic diseases? So you take all of those into account to um, gain expectations. In the best case, you know, very uh, mildly affected ear, then it's possible to reconstruct these ears with an airbone gap under 10 decibels in the very best case, uh, or under 20 and I would say two-thirds of patients. If you're just performing simple tympanic membrane repair where you think that the uh, eustachian tube function is reasonable, then you know I would expect closure of the airbone gap to 10 decibels or less in the overwhelming majority of cases. Um, Looking at the uh, percentage of cases where you successfully repair the eardrum and then the middle ear goes on later to have ventilation problems, uh, the best estimate is that that's about one in five cases. 
so again, that's a significant percentage of, of patients. And so you need long-term follow-up. Well, this has been an awesome discussion for a topic that is pretty complex. And I think especially from the resident side, uh, difficult to understand. So I really appreciate your time. Before I move into a summary, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think that's it. Uh, so in summary, um, chronic middle ear disease is uh, multifaceted, but patients often present with um, otorrhea and, uh, and a tympanic membrane perforation. But as we discussed, there's a whole spectrum of this, including eustachian tube dysfunction, um, otitis media with effusion, and other aspects of chronic uh, ear disease. Um, and when we think about evaluating these patients, there are some key aspects that include what are the ventilation of the ear, how, what's the status of the tympanic membrane, uh, what's the status of the middle ear, is there infection, what's the status of the temporal bone, how is the patient's hearing, and is there cholesteatoma or other complications. And when we consider management strategies, we can start out uh, with in-office procedures to include uh, drops and powders and aggressive oral toilet. Uh, but might need to move on to uh, surgical management, including uh, tympanoplasty, possible mastoidectomy, acicularplasty, and uh, in some cases, subtrotal petrosectomy with ear canal closure. And uh, as Dr. Glue said, this is a chronic condition that uh, might require quite a bit of follow-up depending on the patient's severity. Dr. Glue, thanks so much. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, my pleasure. Uh, It's been great, and I appreciate you letting me come on and talk about chronic ear disease. So we'll move on to the question portion asking of our time. Uh, as a reminder, uh, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds uh, to give you time to think, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what are some common signs and symptoms of chronic middle ear disease? So common signs and symptoms would be conductive hearing loss, odorrhea, um, and I would think that those are sort of the two hallmark things that you want to think about. And you can also see maybe tinnitus, oral fullness, and then rarely vertigo, facial weakness, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. So there's a wide spectrum. But I think the hallmark signs and symptoms would be uh, conductive hearing loss and odorrhea. Perfect. Next question. What are the eight key aspects to evaluate in the setting of chronic ear disease? So the eight things that we want to think about are ventilation status, eardrum status, middle ear status. Um, We also want to think about the infection status. What's the temporal bone anatomy? What's going on with the hearing? Is there cholesteatoma and are there complications? And then finally, for our last question, what are the general indications for surgical intervention and what are the goals in chronic ear disease? So the general uh, surgical approach would be surgery for patients that have a complication, that have cholesteatoma, that have disease that is uh, refractory to office-based medical therapy, or dry ears that have some element that is negatively impacting quality of life that might be improved with surgery. As uh, far as the goals of surgery, we want to generate a clean, dry, safe, stable ear. Of course, the purpose of the ear is to hear, so when possible, we want to restore hearing or at least facilitate uh, hearing improvement with a hearing aid or implantable hearing device. And, uh, and then lastly, uh, render the ear uh, favorable from a quality of life standpoint where 
patients, if possible, can swim, get the ear wet, etc. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.